0: Listening to the Top Music Guitar Podcast, the show for guitar teachers to learn about the craft of teaching great guitar lessons that students love. If you're looking to start or expand your studio and make guitar teaching your full time dream job, you've come to the right place. Each week, you'll get to hear from some of the top guitar teachers from around the globe and get their best tips and experiences so you too can build your own dream studio. I'm your host, Michael, and I've founded one of the top guitar schools in Australia, written a best selling curriculum, and I mentor guitar teachers. I'm excited to share my expertise with you and the wisdom of all the experts we interview. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Let's get into it. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Top Music Guitar Teaching Podcast. Now before we dive into this episode, I just want to let you know that we do have a membership For top music. So if you are getting great advice from these podcasts and you want to show some thanks and appreciation for it, or just improve your guitar teaching skills, head to topmusic.co and look for our guitar membership for less than the cost of probably what you charge for a private lesson. You can upgrade your teaching skills, learn some new business tricks and improve the overall experience for your students. So if you're interested, check that out at our website. Now, today's guest is someone who started out as one of my teachers, someone I looked up to almost as a a father figure in my own guitar playing journey, Uh, someone who I met at an international guitar playing event who is a teacher, and then I would say he took me under his wing, always offered really great advice, and he's almost earned the nickname Uncle Charlie from not just myself, but a bunch of other guitar players and guitar teachers I know. And he's someone who, as I mentioned, started as a teacher and is now someone I can call a really, really great friend. So, Charlie, welcome to the Top Music Guitar Teaching Podcast.
1: Well, I am super happy to be here. Although that that intro, if I'm going to be your musical father, people need to know I had you when I was like 12. So just, uh, no, it's, it's wonderful to be here. I love what you do and I love, uh, I've listened to a lot of the podcasts, some great information, some really inspiring information. So uh,
0: hopefully we'll keep that going here today. Most definitely. And I'll let you guys l- know, listening at home, this podcast has been about a year in the making. I think uh, Charlie was one of the first people that I wanted to get on as a guest, but just for various reasons, we were always just waiting for a project to finish or the timing didn't line up. And even about two weeks ago, we we had round number one and then uh, just the internet wasn't working and we did kind of three quarters of an interview and it just... Uh, wasn't going to be anything we could edit together with just constant disconnections. So we're we're back for round number 2 today and if the interview from 2 weeks ago was any indication not to mention Charlie's enormous wealth of knowledge and he's just I never like saying the word natural affinity for teaching because often we can work at things over time but Charlie's absolutely great at communicating his message whether that's Guitar playing, guitar teaching, and a whole bunch of other things in the middle, and I know you guys are going to learn a lot today. So buckle up! Now, Charlie, can you give our listeners a brief overview of your story so far and how guitar teaching has been a part of your professional life in various forms?
1: Absolutely. So, my journey. I I grew up in a family where there was always music around. My mother uh, was just a beautiful singer, is still a beautiful singer, and her father was a professional musician. He had a, a day gig, but uh, he had played for years and years on local television. He'd be in various orchestras and the pit and so forth. And so he actually was capable of making a living at it. And what was really fascinating to me and what what and instilled the love of, of music to me. One was just being able to go visit him and be surrounded by these incredible vintage musical instruments he played the organ he played the accordion he played the banjo he played some guitar and and you know even when I was a little kid his these these instruments that he had for instance the banjo that he used uh, my grandmother had had scrimped and saved and and bought for him while he was away at World War II so you know and that was post depression in the United States so to be able to afford something like that they must have or my grandmother must have really uh scrimped and and uh Saved to get by. So it was pretty phenomenal. And it's one of my prized possessions now that I still have that. But that was, it was always so fascinating. And and to see him play, you know, something like like play the organ when you're a little kid and you see some guy and these feet are moving and playing the bass line and one hand's playing a melody and one hand's comping and he's got, you know, moving around buttons and settings. And you go, man, this is amazing. I've, I've got to be involved with that. And, and I guess the other thing that really instilled that love was, uh, my grandfather's, I what we would look at Michael as a vintage record collection. It was just his record collection, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he had uh, you know Chet Atkins records from the 1950s and 60s, West Montgomery original records, uh, you know, just phenomenal stuff. And he would take them out and he would say, "Hey, you know, listen to this. This is Chet Atkins. Listen to this. This is Jerry Reed." You know, and it was it was just phenomenal. One, you know, I was inspired by him, but then hearing these people and knowing that he was inspired by them. You know, that that just instills the, the excitement and uh, motivation to try to do something to be like that in some small way. So that's how I got into guitar, got into was lucky enough to have a jazz teacher, uh, really good player and teacher at a, a young age. So by the time I was 14, I was uh, playing rhythm guitar in big band jazz gigs and played, you know, for a couple of years on the road uh, it, in a hiatus at college. And, and played that long enough to realize that I didn't like being on the road and I guess maybe I was a little too normal to do uh, to really pursue the music thing uh, from a, a traveling basis and have taught guitar off and on gosh since I was uh, probably in in middle school where my buddies would come over and they would you know give me five dollars for a lesson or something at the time you know something ridiculous and uh I actually taught in another discipline. I taught sports and was an award-winning instructor in sports. Got to spend a lot of time with uh, some very renowned sports psychologists, performance psychologists that helped me make great strides with my knowledge about learning and tailored the ability to sort of adjust a presentation style uh, by being able to read or, you know, whether you do it intuitively or actually I used to hand out profiles and have people, new students uh, do a basically a psychological profile, so I could get some sort of high level idea of what would motivate them and what their learning style was. But yeah, it's and it's something that's continued to this day. Um, again, we met at an international guitar event where we were—I think you were first in attendance—and then you became a teacher. where uh, We were teaching hundreds of people from all over the globe, uh, you know, for weeks at a time. So that was, you know, that was a wonderful experience, and and it's something I continue now. I've the past. Uh, oh gosh, year and a half. I've uh, started a YouTube channel, and I've g- also got a very extensive course on uh, pentatonic scales, different approaches to using the pentatonic scales in blues. So, really starting to push that online presence, and that's really what I see as my business model for the future. So,
0: yeah, fantastic. And there's so much there I want to unpack from what you've just said. But maybe diving into what you said about the psychological profiling and the sports science because. My background, um, my dad was an AFL level player in our national football composition here in Australia. And I got to spend a lot of time growing up around coaches and, and he went on into coaching as well and see what they're doing with the professional teams at the, you know, the highest level. And part of what I think has been able to allow me to be successful is just adapting that for how I taught guitar. So I'd be really keen to hear a bit more about uh, what you learn from the sports and applied to teaching. If you could go into that,
1: yeah, that's a that's a wonderful question, and then I think maybe being outside of of uh, teaching and and goes into multiple dis- disciplines that I've been involved with, in, but being able to uncover people's motivations, being able to ask the right questions to find out, you know, really probe into somebody and find out why they're doing something. I think that you, I, I guarantee you've experienced it. You, you're probably. An example of it as I am, but you know we all have different motivations for doing things. And mine was so deep seated that that I literally begged my mother and father to to buy me a guitar and give me guitar lessons. You know whether that came from my grandfather, just hearing so much music as a young person, and whether we are going into academics or we're playing sports or we're playing music, there there is the people that are going to be as successful. They're deeply driven internally. I you know as much as we may try and maybe this is up for dispute but this external motivation once people are past a certain developmental point it gets really really hard and hopefully we we get lots and lots of students that are internally motivated and we we are able to guide them and channel that energy in the right directions but the other part of it i think one of the things that left a great impression on me was learning about uh, people's learning styles and how they how they want to receive information how they um Or passive or proactive once they receive the information, and even what their style of receiving information might be, you know. And I think that, uh, like for instance, you you might get a student that's very kinesthetically gifted, but their personality is a little on the passive side, you know. So it's it's a struggle first of all to to develop some sort of rapport, and then uh, you might tailor, like like for instance, I'm I'm a very visual learner. I And I can remember the first time I saw a a video with Eddie Van Halen in it, and he was tapping. And I never knew what he was doing before. And once I saw that video, I was great. But that's not necessarily going to work for different types of learners. You know, it'll help everyone, yes, but it's not going to have as big an impact on certain types of learners. So so having some sort of an idea of how the people that are in front of you want to process information and be presented information, I think it's invaluable.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point that needs to be brought to the attention. Uh, For anyone listening at home, I'm sure everyone can kind of think of their model student, someone who they just love teaching that gets it straight away. And then you can probably think of a couple of other students who just never get anything. Chances are the people that you really enjoy teaching, they learn the same way as you and you without even knowing it are teaching in a particular way that suits your learning style and you're gelling with them the students you're frustrated with, they're not any less capable. They probably just learn differently to how you present. And that may feel frustrating for you. But if you can kind of flip it and go, hang on, all I've got to do is work out what this person needs in order to succeed or understand or take in the information, then you can start getting that person better results or have a better connection or rapport with them because now you're teaching them the way they need to be taught rather than the one size fits all approach you think everyone would just naturally learn to. So Becoming aware of that kind of stuff has been hugely influential for me, and something I think a lot of teachers would be a lot less frustrated if they figured out.
1: And it's incredibly difficult, right? And and just in notes I was making before we talked, one of the things that I had written down a little note: teachers can never stop learning. You know, first of all, but at the same time, you know, maybe we would amend that into something like uh, teachers must strive to be self-aware, right? Because it, it's it's one of those things where, and I know, I mean, I've been doing this so long and, and I still find myself being frustrated with people that don't learn and behave just like I do. You know, you, you see the world through your own prism and you superimpose that on everybody, whether you want to admit it or not. So staying, it may be two rules, never, never stop learning and always be self-aware would be, uh, a couple of
0: golden rules for, for <laughs> teachers. Yeah, definitely write them ones down. And that self awareness is such a a really really important one, and one that unless you're aware, you don't really know it. And uh, a lot of teachers wondering why their students are quitting all the time. Yeah, you know, what what are you? Where is the disconnect with what you're trying to deliver or how you think you are? A lot to be gained from self reflection. Absolutely. So I could talk about this psychology stuff. Is there any particular way you got into learning about this personality profiling and motivation, or any resources you could recommend people check out?
1: There were a couple of things. One, I, I started to. Uh, this was back in the days when I was doing sports. And I was in, uh, specifically a, a golf instructor, and I got to hang around with some people at the very highest levels. And you know, when you ask once you you know you're around those type of people, you have to ask questions. You know, what are you doing that's different? How have you gotten to where you are? And the answer by several of those people was I'm working with experts in the field of performance and learning so that I can better understand how to present information, you know, and that's mind boggling when you're you're a young teacher. You know, but there, there's lots of, and I, I should have written them down before we came on here, but there's there's lots of resources out there. For people, if you want to get into the i the, the sort of the the psychology of excellence, there are lots of resources out there. If you wanted to get into the psychology of learning, uh, there there again are wonderful resources out there, and it it will really you know you like one of the instances. and I Anders, uh, I think the book is just called Excellence. I forget the gentleman's name now, but he he has basically spent years and years and years being with the most esteemed coaches in many disciplines. And he's traveled the world and watched what these coaches do and why their students come, tend to come out different than than other coaches. And, you know, that that's the kind of thing, again, that that will set you apart as an instructor. I mean, everybody knows scales. Everybody you know, knows different etudes and and things like that and pieces of music and like everybody can teach songs, but it's, can you, and and as someone said, sometimes we don't really teach, we assist learning and there's a difference, right? The the difference between talking at someone and understanding and talking to someone, not to
0: oversimplify, but (laughs) yeah, definitely. And that's such a a thought provoking statement there. You know, what is the difference between imparting knowledge and then I suppose assisted learning is helping someone actually take that knowledge and make something of it. And that's something I can reflect upon is knowing every scale in the book, but still be seeking that one little thing that's going to make me sound musical and making a mistake of chasing speed and precision and better technique without ever actually listening to people who've been playing for a couple of months or, or decades less than myself play the most beautiful, melodic, intuitively informed lines and being like, what is this sorcery? How are you doing this? And then going home, into, I must practice. If, if I play a little faster, maybe I'll magically be able to play with more feel or whatever it happens to be. But yeah. yeah, that's a profound statement. How do I assist someone in learning and acquiring the skill or getting to where they need to go? Yeah, for sure. Now, I do want to go back to... uh our days where we first met, because I obviously was an advancing player, obviously not a slouch, and was already playing in bands professionally, but always wanted to improve more. So I signed up for an event, you know, marketed it becoming your know, master of the guitar and all these kind of things, and that's where I met you. With your experience helping late intermediates and advanced players improve their technique and creativity, uh, and lots and lots of frustrated players who've been, you know, ten years, fifteen years, decades in the game and still unsatisfied think most guitar players are missing in their musical education
1: that um again a a fantastic question and i think the answer you know it's probably changed over time as our access to different types of information has increased Um, and i can you know talk back in my day the first lead guitar that i learned i actually learned on an acoustic guitar dropping a needle on a photograph record. You know, and I had I had two records. I had Kiss Alive and I had Frampton Comes Alive. And those were the two rock and roll records that I had at the time. And I really like Peter Frampton's playing, the, the very sort of elegant single line playing that he was doing even back in those days. And I think. What I see people missing now, so one, one we were missing back then, we, we didn't have any information period. Right. I mean, we were, we were literally listening and hunting and pecking like somebody on a typewriter for the first time or a keyboard for the first time. And it, you know, it was a long, painful process, but at the same time, I think there was something, I think the information was imprinted differently and deeper on our brains Because we had to work so hard to to get that information, like I can still play the solos from Frampton Comes Alive, and that was from a long decades ago, right? And I think we have advantages now, and kids have incredible amounts of information—not just kids, all all people, but specifically, you know, I see younger people getting access to musical instruments, and their experiences are—they get a sheet of tab. And they might learn some fingering patterns and, and learn some songs. But if you say, Hey, let's play some blues in B flat. They have no idea what you're talking about. They have no idea what to do. They have no sort of conception of the bigger picture of how music works, right? It's everything is, is very specific and it's, it's learned in these pieces of information that are cannot, not connected to anything else. You know, so I I, we didn't have any information, but what little information we had, we were very connected to. And what I'm seeing now is that people have so much information, they have no idea how to integrate it. And um, I think the people that come to me now, they don't seem to listen. They don't seem to have the same amount of music in their head, in their head that people did in the past. And I think that is an overlooked part of of the way a lot of things are taught today. In that the the idea that if you learn to listen intently and in some way, shape, and form, you're probably already doing a very, very high level transcription, right? And you start to memorize these things, and you you it, things just start to innately make sense if you listen to lots and lots of music. So I think that's. That's something that I think is critical that maybe today's instructors should almost have mandatory listening for their students. You know, not only mandatory listening, but to, to be able to come back and talk about it and break it down. You know, you never, not even with your own instrument, your hand maybe, but to, you know, just the idea that when we were younger, we might put on eruption and listen to it until we wore out a cassette tape. You know, I don't think that happens anymore. And I think a lot of uh, the students I see, their musicality from the standpoint of phrasing and time feel is severely lacking and again it's if you learn a song by reading it off tab chart not by listening you know what what are the chances that you're going to be able to absorb the nuances and recreate the nuances whether it's a bass line or a drum part or a guitar part you know, I don't care if a tab has a little little icon and it says whammy bar out beside it, unless you've heard the person play that particular note with the whammy bar, you're not gonna be able to recreate it. Right. And so that's something I feel and then time feel, I think there's a huge emphasis on being strictly metronomic today. You know, and how many times have you heard or read even even famous guitar players talking about well, I tried to learn this Eddie Van Halen song today, but I just don't have his swing, right? If I've read that once, I've read it a million times. And it's like, well, go practice swing. you know. And Eddie Van Halen's dad was a jazz clarinetist. There's, it's no mystery why he had swing, right? So it, it, you know, just little things, it's, it's the things that are a, a little more subjective that I think are missing and a lot of the students that I come across and, and even a lot of the guitar players that I hear nowadays.
0: Yeah. And I suppose just the things I reflect upon frequently is it is a different world. I don't think anyone under the age of 18 is ever going to buy a CD again, let alone pay for music again, the way that we did. Some of the older generations might still do now, but did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Music is, and it's a shame There's never been so much music in the world. There's never been a better time to be a musician and get your music out and share it with Spotify and platforms and streaming and YouTube. But at the same time, it's just so overcrowded. And music is almost like a passive thing. now. I put music in the background while I play games or I put music in the background while I work. Like People rarely just sit down and just listen to music. I remember whenever an album I'm really looking forward to comes out, I want to get in my car and go for a drive and listen to it so that that's the only thing or that I you know, sit in a room with nothing else going and I just enjoy the music. And I think that's something that people definitely don't do as much as what they used to. And I think that's just a symptom of you know the world changing slightly, but that's also going to have an impact on the way that people learn music uh, from an education perspective is because they're not actively listening as much, much to it. They're not paying attention to the underlying covers, the tones, the harmony, the texture, the melodies, the phrasing, all these kind of things. And with all the advancements in technology for tab profiles, readers, assuming their music is correct, because I know you mentioned before um, they're just reading off a page and you know assuming, we've got to make an assumption that they've got a good transcription or, or what the notes they're reading is accurate <laughs> and they're not just playing Chinese whispers. But yeah, the musicians of yesteryear, because they had no other choice but to use their ear, they develop these amazing ears. And I I may have mentioned this like in the previous week, I think the caliber of musician in the United States is just so much stronger than it is here in Australia because it's just more culturally acceptable to be a musician. And uh, there's families, you know, generations of musicians where in Australia you sort of (laughs) looked upon like the scum of the earth if you're a musician because of many, you know, bad stereotypes and stigmas to come out of it. But when we had, um, I can't remember his name, Very famous drummer, jazz fusion drummer. I don't want to say Dave Reckle, but I think it's Dave something. Wackle? Wackle. I I believe it was him. Came to my university to like sit in and observe for a week and give him some feedback. And he was just like horrified at the the difference in quality to the point where, you know, a musician who's been playing since they're five and then goes through a university path is going to be so much further ahead than someone who is like myself, who age 15 decided, man, I, this is what I want to do. I heard eruption and and now I want to play guitar. You can't bridge that gap even with four or five hours a day practice all the time. I don't, you know, some people out there definitely do. I'm just making excuses for myself there. But he was he was shocked at the um you know the lack of quality. And I think part of that is just the way that you listen to things differently. The immersive environment you can create for yourself through active listening versus having a computer tell you everything and dictate it to you it is a different world, but if you want to play like the players of yesteryear and your favorite guitar heroes, then you have to go about learning and listening the way they, they did it.
1: I would agree. And I think that, um, again, that's something that's a little bit lost and whether it's, I've seen teachers that have too much ego to, Oh, we're not going to listen to that guy or whatever. But you know, the, just to have people, you know, and I am thinking as we sit here talking tiny things, you talk about active listening, for instance, you're trying to learn a part. well, You might look up a tab page, and a person that is an inexperienced player with an inexperienced ear might play the notes as they're written on the page, and they might think that sounds fine. But yourself or myself, we listen to the recording, and we go, "Wait a minute! You know the tone's not that bright. He's not playing that on the E and B strings. He's playing it on the the G and D strings up higher on the neck. You know something so small like that, but it's something that if you really have trained yourself to actively listen uh, to, to all the aspects of the music. It's something that sticks out like a sore thrum. And that's why, I mean, again, you and I can probably pull transcription after transcription off ultimate guitar and say, that's not right. That's not right. That's even if the notes are right, it's not being played in the right positions or with the right emphasis on, uh, again, the timing or phrasing.
0: Yeah. Oh, most definitely. And, To speak of little things, here's a a little thought exercise for everybody. If you're listening at home and you probably haven't listened actively as you've grown up, go back and listen to some of your old favorite tracks, like ones that you haven't listened to for a good five to 10 years. And you will find things in the songs that you have never heard before when you're actively listening. Put a song on and go, I'm just going to listen to the bass for this whole song and try and follow the bass you'll hear things that you've never heard before because 10 years ago, your ear was less developed than it was now. And art's a bad example, but because I haven't, I can look at a painting and go, oh yeah, it either looks good or it doesn't look good. Like I, I don't have any appreciation for the hard work, but when your ear develops, you can go back and listen to the simplest of pop songs, which you may think you've matured out of now. before you listen to just like prog and stuff like that, but you can go back and I listened to Thriller by Michael Jackson Yesterday, I was actually showing it to one of my younger classes. One, I was actually very happy that people knew who Michael Jackson still was. (laughs) But listening to Thriller, uh, and more importantly, it was like the the film clip version, which is different to the recorded version, going, oh, there's all these really intricate funk guitar lines and little synth lines and wonderful horn lines I never even realized or appreciated back then. So uh, if you do truly appreciate music, like listen without anything other than the music there to distract you, and you'll discover just so much more beauty in stuff that's been there the whole time. Yeah, very well said. It's amazing what you can
1: hear, what you think you remember with a couple of listens. And if you go back and actively and really, really listen, you know, it's amazing what you might uncover.
0: Most definitely. Now, Charlie, how can we go about helping some of our more advanced students get to where they're going from someone who sees a lot of uh, people at that later stage and they come to you say, Hey, I need help with this. What's your sort of framework for helping people?
1: Yeah, so you know, I, I think uh, one as a as an instructor as a teacher, that word framework is incredibly important. You know, I, I think you you need to have the ability to watch someone play, you know, to ask them, you run them through various exercise and sort of um, skill tests, and whatever level they're aspiring to, you have to be able to almost you know, immediately look at that person and do an overlay of the type of musician that they want to be, does these, this set of things at this level and you do an evaluation Well, this person is doing these things at this level or they're not doing these things at all. And that ought to trigger some sort of, of course of action, you know, for that, that you would prescribe for that particular individual. You know, I, I think, and, and I, I, and of course, this this is on a sort of a sliding scale, but I'll give you an example that I had during the COVID times. And there were there were a couple of good things that came out of COVID, one of which for me is that there you were know, some, some very wonderful musicians that had gigs canceled and tours canceled and were looking for things to do. And I was able to get involved with a Grammy-winning guitarist that plays with a Major classic rock band, and then a LA studio musician that was one of the lead instructors at Musicians Institute in LA, and we did a monthly exercise. They would mail out two tracks with the guitars stripped out, and you would lay down rhythm parts and solos. And some of these are really tough tunes. And they, of course, they would send out notes. They would send out a video themselves improvising. They would talk about the strategies they were using, and you'd have that time period to record your own versions of the guitar parts, email them back to these folks, video video and back. And then uh, we would have a, a call, a Zoom at the end of the month, and there'd be anywhere 15, 20 people on there. And we would watch the performances, and we would listen to these people evaluate, and we'd get to evaluate things ourselves. And you know, at, at our level, hearing what the people in the very upper echelon of the guitar world, the playing world, um, how they would hear something that would be perceived by ourselves, which might you know we might think of ourselves as a, a local or regional or, or even worldwide expert uh, if you're on the the internet or so forth. But to hear these people break down, you know, and, and emphasize time feel, note choice, being able to highlight tones within the chords, uh, the, the different voicings that you would use when you played rhythm your different feels, your different tones, you know, but, but over and over the things I heard were time feel, appropriate tone, taste, use of space, you know, and and then we think we think of ourselves and, and, and the pursuit, especially as we start to gain some skill, we get into this crazy mad rush to learn more stuff, you know, more, I want more, I want more, I want different, I want more, and if I learn one more scale, you know, I'm, I, it's going to push me over the top, and I'm going to, it's superstardom, and you learn the people at superstardom are thinking about taste, space, tone, fit the song, time, feel—you know—all these these things. And it was really invaluable for me because I, you know, we we all get caught up in that arms race for technique and information, and that's not. <laughs> Uh, that's not ultimately what is going to impress people. And I, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's a great series of, uh, videos that Marty Friedman did. And one of the things he's talking about is playing scales. And he's like, I don't know who told you that was cool, man. Your girlfriend is not telling you that it's cool. It's, it's just really hilarious interviews, but, um, you know, all the things that we pursue are, they're not what the people at the highest level are looking for typically.
0: Yeah, it's so funny to hear you describe it as an arms race. I've never heard that before, but it is exactly what it is. And I think there's definitely a phase for – I heard uh, Guthrie Govan mention something like, yeah, scales of these things that guitar players try and play as fast as they can to intimidate other guitar players and then assert <laughs> uh, dominance. And Then you go through a phase of once you get to a certain level, you sort of mature into, okay, how can I be the best, most tasteful guitar player I can be rather than just trying to – scare everyone off and there's I love that kind of playing and I think some of our listeners are going to be in the camp of you got to play with feel some of them are going to be you got to play with speed I think you should at least have a a decent amount of speed to brag about or to execute at whatever level you want but yeah the pursuit of speed beyond musical usage is kind of what's the point of having a Ferrari if you can only drive it at 100ks or 60 miles an hour (laughs) on the road Sometimes yeah. it's just cool to have a Ferrari, you know, who am I to judge yeah. Yeah, uh, right. better to have the Ferrari and then make the decision on how you use it rather than just envy everyone who has one, but yeah. just be the best guitar player you want to be and work towards, uh, the music that inspires you or having the technique. And this is what I've been exploring with people, almost like the psychology profile when they come in, some people say, Oh, how long does it take to master guitar? And I say, well, it depends on what you want to do. And I go, here's the cool thing. And and this was a conversation I've had with a student because I was literally trying to come up with like a Pokemon card style game, but guitar heroes, like how could we objectively measure and battle guitar heroes? And I just sort of said, well, let's have them a score out of 10 for technique. Let's have a score out of 10 for fretboard knowledge and a score out of 10 for uh, music theory knowledge. So someone like Kurt Cobain might be, two in all those areas or if you like Ed Sheeran although I think he probably is much more talented than he lets on in his pop songs because he's just writing radio hits you know you're only looking at two or three out of those skills if you got someone like Eric Clapton or Angus Young maybe back in the 70s mid 80s they were closer to 10 but in the grand scheme of things now they're probably only five or six and then you got your guys like your, your Steve Vai and Satriani who are who are your eight or nine out of tens and then you got your Petrushis and And Guthrie's, who are just so good. And he goes, Yeah, Michael, it's all well and good, but someone like Slash is super low on technique. But when you're on a pool hall, if you put a Dream Theater song on, everyone just does whatever. You put Sweet Charter Model on, everyone's doing air guitar and doing all the moves. And he goes, You need an extra factor. And he goes, Why don't you have the soul factor or the feel factor? I'm like, Oh, you're absolutely right. So there's kind of like, it's hard to quantify soul or feel, but it's definitely an element that's there and some guitar players have it a lot more like Slash can make 3 to 5 notes absolutely sing just like BB King can but Melmstein to me also has his own kind of fire or or feel that other players had or nobody had up until Melmstein came out and, and did it so i just say to people look what level do you want to go to and this is roughly a cool uh, an estimated time frame of what what it'll take if you want to play your favorite Nirvana songs like Strap in for the best six months of your life, but if you want to play dream theater, you know we've got at least four or five years of hard work and consistent practice ahead of us. Are you willing to commit and then we go from there yeah, and then we walk down whichever framework we need to build up our skills, whether it's fretboard knowledge, technique, creativity, the note choice, the theory, all these factors in, and it's often a combination of all of them
1: yeah and you know the other thing and it's it's more difficult now i think people that are learning guitar don't have the opportunity to play out and actually make music with other people and uh i think that's an invaluable experience and i've even i've met people that have told me they have no intention to ever play music with other people or for other people i'm like, well why are you learning and it's almost like lifting weights well I, I just want to be able to do it you know i want to be able to do this or play that i'm like well why don't you take up weightlifting and try to bench press, you know, 200 pounds and, you know, and would you quit if that was your goal? If that was your only sporting ideas is, is to get to 200 pounds bench press, then you achieve it. And then what, you know, where you, where are you going to go from there? But I, I don't see people, a lot of people being inspired by the idea of I'm going to play guitar because I want to play with my buddies and we're going to, you know, impress some girls or whatever the case may be, or make some money on Saturday nights and, you know, I, I, but there, by the same token, there's a lot of recording being done, great records being made in in dorm rooms, like plenty, and yeah. uh, you know. So, and and he's gotten to the point now; he's out there playing live and touring. And but it's it's you know, so so there are things that have changed, you know, for the worse, and things that have changed for the better. But I do think it's an invaluable experience to play live music with real people. And I can remember the first time, again, the teacher that I had, um, I was kind of a little jazz nerd when I was a teenager, early teenager, and didn't really have the opportunity to play with other folks. And the first few times that I did try to play rock and pop music with friends that I had met, my timing was awful. You know, I'd never done anything but play with records. I didn't know how real people would ebb and flow. I didn't know how to uh, keep the beat internally, uh, you know, in my own case, without a record play, to play with, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a great thing that that is missing these days. And even the want of the opportunity to do that is uh, smaller and smaller and smaller, especially after COVID.
0: Yeah, like I struggle to fathom it. Not, I put it to my students, I say, imagine going to football training or whatever sport you play. Uh, imagine going to training Every week, over and over and over, but never playing a game on the weekend or never having a match. Like, and most people for playing a sport, the worst part is the training. Mm. Most people love their lesson. Like, you imagine how much fun your lesson is. That's the training. Playing with other people is the game, and that's what you want to work towards. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, it's definitely something where, um, I guess, just with PlayStation's all the additional technology, social media, there's just all these other things to do now. And again, back in the day. There wasn't necessarily as many other things to do. That's why more people played music and probably got a better quality because they were less distracted. And and once again, we've got the isolation of being in your bedroom on your own social media, I'll get good at guitar. And you release these amazing things. And I think a great band to pay attention to is like Polyphia, who are doing absolutely amazing kind of things. But that's pushing the boundaries of how perfect and polished and sparkly you can make things. Exactly, and uh, which is great in its own right. But to go back to Pliny, I remember him at a clinic saying, "At age twenty-four, he'd never done a live show. He only ever done bedroom stuff. And then, age twenty-five, he he obviously released his album, did his first show, opening it took off, and um, you know, now he's where he is now. But probably this might have even been before the pandemic. Uh, I don't think I've he's he's been actually I've seen him since there, but maybe about. The year before the pandemic, Pliny played a show and he he bought like a saxophonist on stage and they just said, hey, we're going to jam on a couple of tunes for the next three or four songs. And it was probably the most amazing show I've been to in recent memory because it just had this awesome feel. He had a saxophonist and he had another uh, lady come out and play keyboard and they did some Pliny song. I think they did another just like a, uh, some sort of standard or, or cover. I can't remember what it was, but it was... Had goosebumps the whole time, and it was just this amazing improvisation. They just jammed over the the A sections, or like almost like a, a true. It was like a gent jazz gig. <laughs> it was quite remarkable, and that stood out because that's what's been missing from a lot of these shows. It's the same format. The set list is the same every city. Play the show to a click track, and there, there was no clicks. There was nothing like that. It was musicians up on stage having fun, and it made it just so much more enjoyable for the rest of the audience.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's good. If I'm not mistaken, I think Pliny's father is a jazz bassist.
0: I believe so. so yeah.
1: Yeah. So he's got got a little oral background there anyway.
0: Yeah. Now, Pliny got famous through YouTube. And speaking of YouTube, you've recently launched your channel. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about everything from the conception and, and what motivated you to get started right up into how it's going right now?
1: Yeah. It's. Um YouTube is something that you know I've watched obviously for years and years and years, and i honestly, I'm a little late into the game. you know I think that i I feel like anyway that I have something that is unique to say about certain aspects of guitar playing and if if we can condense vital information down into its essence and maybe uh accelerate other people's learning cycles, that's something that that I get very excited about so the whole idea with my my channel is is um sort of the name I have adopted for it is make sense of soloing. And it's, it's again, distilling a lot of, of information, decades of information that I've got about how to approach improvising on the guitar into an essence is something that, that can maybe shortcut again, that, that learning curve. Cause it's, you know, the learning curve is one of the things that is tough about guitar. And I think it's something that turns a lot of people off and, um, I know that there's information that I've gotten, you know, a decade into playing that I'm like, why didn't somebody tell me that in the beginning? You know, that, that's really, really fundamental or, you know, just hearing an idea presented in a different way that made it so much easier to digest. You know, those are the kind of things. What are the ways that seem to resonate the most with people? And then let me do a bunch of busy videos on these type of things to, to help people build up some technique and, and have some concepts that go beyond, uh, again, learn this tab for such and such tune. It's, you know, understand the chord progression of that tune, understand, understand the scales and arpeggios that you can play over these particular chords, understand how to create melodies, you know, to intertwine all your ideas. And it's just, that's, that's what really motivates me is to get people to be able to be what I call fluent on the guitar and to be able to play melodies and melodic solos and and some more technical things too, but as easily as they would be able to sing a song that they know very well. You know, and on that, that's sort of the whole impetus is developing the technique, but developing it in an organic way that they're able to relate to composition and melody also.
0: Fantastic.
1: <laughs> so that's, that's what we're doing and it's it's interesting the as as I'm sure you've realized your levels of su- success seem to ebb and flow dramatically and uh it's it I'll be honest is you know for people that are looking into it it's frustrating it's a lot of work for very very little payoff in the beginning so uh, you know it's something that you have to have a long-term vision on and I think it's a uh, at this point for me it's it's a bit of a labor of love I mean I have a vision in mind and we're moving towards it we're moving enough that uh i'm not discouraged but um it's not the easiest thing I've ever done but i think we're i think i'm getting a message out there that i think needs to be heard um and, I, and again it's a little bit of a rebellion against the i'm gonna learn everything off tabs and not know anything about music approach that a lot of people take on youtube so there we go that's my story i'm sticking to it
0: yeah well it's an interesting point you say it and if you just draw that back to guitar, because I know a lot of our listeners have YouTube channels, maybe you've given up on YouTube channels or might be interested in, in actually starting one, is same thing with your students. If they do six months of lessons and then go, oh, you know what? I'm just not getting anywhere with my guitar playing. I'm going to stop. Then it's, it, it's over. You've wasted your six months on learning guitar and you knew going into it, it was probably going to be a two-year, five-year, 10-year lifelong commitment you got to think about YouTube the same way. And yeah, there's going to be times where you're absolutely on fire. You get a video that takes off and goes viral and you get all these great comments on it. And then there's days where your video gets less than 100 views and there's a couple of trolls who tell you how shit you are and everything. <laughs> and you're just like, ah, oh, man, I suck. Uh, just yeah. like guitar, you have good gigs, bad gigs, days where you have breakthroughs and days where it feels like you know, you're 10 BPM slower than yesterday and you get frustrated. But if you stick with it long enough, you'll eventually get to the destination. It's just uh, keep learning, keep on doing what you're doing, You know, trying to get your message out there and provide value. Ultimately, if, you, if your videos suck, you don't have any quality and you're not, uh, what did we say at the start of the interview? If you're not self-aware, if you're not learning and reflecting, you know, don't keep doing more of the bad stuff. You've got to keep on trying to improve what you're doing and bridge the distance between what skills do I need in my communication, and my editing, with my lovely new background I've got to get to you know, what are the guys who are getting a million views or a million subscribers doing that I need to improve on myself to get to that same level? Uh, but I did want to ask, because you mentioned things that you learned 10 years into the journey, you go, man, I wish I had known that from the start. So is there a couple of you know little nuggets of wisdom you can tell us, things you've discovered or, you know, in your own playing or now you make a point of teaching people with that in mind?
1: Yeah, there's, uh, I mentioned the word fluency and it's one of the first things that I try to do that that is usually a little different with students. And it's the idea of we all learn patterns. We learn lots and lots of patterns as guitar players, but we're not necessarily taught how to connect patterns, right? So I might ask a, a player, for instance, do you know how to play an F major triad? And they'll go, yes, okay, well, play it for me. And they might play it in one spot on the neck. I'm like, you know, keep going. They're like, what do you mean? I just, you know, i I want you to play that F major, try it every place on the fretboard you can with every fingering you possibly can. And they look at you like you're insane. You know? So I think there's, I, I wasn't, I was sought, taught a certain set of shapes and then not taught anything else, you know, and, um, have, have been taught, in in later years and, and you know, not recently, but, but to go and be able to find and be fluent with all these things. And then, for instance, I, I mean, I have played guitar for a long time before anybody made me play shapes through the circle of fifths and fourths. You know, and I was I was absolutely helpless the first time that somebody asked me to try to do that. And you know, then with a little practice, all of a sudden you're connecting all these ideas, and and the possibilities of playing jazz standards or some of the complex chord changes becomes possibility, and and pop song chord changes become a, a walk in the park. But that's not necessarily something that we start off with. The idea that we're going to take "quote unquote" the pentatonic boxes and string them together with a series of unending. Lines that we made up by going from pattern to pattern to pattern up and down the neck. That's not something I was taught as a younger person. It was like, learn your shapes, you know, and then you're kind of on your own. And it's the same way if you're doing three note per string scale. You know, one of the things that I have people do is is start with the lowest note that they can play on the on the lowest string that they have in a particular key and to play the three note per string pattern. So you get to the highest note, slide to the next one, descend, and slide to the next one and ascent. And I feel that people should be able to do that backwards, forwards with their eyes closed, but it's not something that I was taught to do. You know, everything that that I was presented was very compartmentalized and, it, you know, if you could take it further than that, great, but nobody was showing me how to do that stuff. And uh, that's, that's something that I put a lot of emphasis
0: on. Yeah. It, it, again, it just comes down to having all the information in the world, but not knowing how to use it or connect it. And I'm sure, you've heard this where, oh yeah, I know that. Okay. Do you really (laughs) know that? (laughs) Yeah. uh, I think I told you on the previous interview is during the pandemic, I had a a lesson with Scott Henderson. And uh, first thing he goes is, do you know your fretboard? And I was like, yeah, I know my fretboard. (laughs) He goes, okay, do this. And turns out I didn't know my fretboard all that well at all. And sometimes you have to get humbled to realize how much you don't know. But again, I think that's a a downside to this ultra-consumist watch video after video after video if you've watched 10 videos on youtube you know you've had a guitar in your hand for three hours but you haven't really learned all that much or you know now you're aware of a couple of things but you really can't use that information because there's no fluidity right but yeah interesting observations there and i know at one point in time you're speaking of motivation and things like that you did have a video that took off and went pretty vile at one point what was that like
1: oh it was a blast and it, it was um it's a heady thing. You know, you, it's a, it's a great shot to the ego. And of course it's soul crushing when the next one, like you say, you put it out and you get 300 views and, uh, you know, you're scratching your head as to why. So I I am, you know, still trying to trying to crack that formula and you see things again, ebb and flow. And I've made some great videos that went nowhere and I've made videos that I didn't think were particularly good that got quite a few views, but it's, it's fun, you know, trying to improve your skills. I, I know that, um, for instance, I I put a video out this morning, and I, I think it's a fantastic video, and I was able to. I'm getting better at being able to condense my information and deliver it in a way that's not going to put people to sleep. Uh, and I you know I know that again back to that idea of self awareness as an instructor, I have this drive to make people understand what I think is fully right. Most people, their idea of fully and my idea of fully they don't line up right so I, I think I tend to over present I think I tend to delve too deeply into subjects and I think that's something that in the past people have probably watched a few minutes of a video and like whoa dude you know I don't want any part of this I just wanted to learn a you know some simple concept this morning and drink my coffee <laughs> so um, you know I think it, it's a walking that fine line and presenting information that you know is vital but Again, coming back to the idea that it's really easy to see the world through only your own perspective and prism, right? So you've got to be able to to think, and it's tough to say, "What did I want to know when I first started playing guitar? What did I want to f- know when I first started playing lead guitar, right? And it's something that we've done so much of that it it's I think I've heard it called expert amnesia, and it's again, something
0: you just have to be aware, you know you have to be aware. Yeah, it's really funny. Like uh, hearing you say some of those things. Like, I think the the understanding because I, I share a similar thing. I, I think one of my highest performing videos is like, man, here's the most important topic I could tell people. So I'm going to make like a a video in the most shortest, concise way possible. It ends up being 30 minutes, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, S- guys, sorry, I'm going to talk a lot in this video. But if you understand this and you take the time to watch this, then you'll have a considerably deeper understanding. And then like the comment at three minutes is shut up. You talk too much. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. well, and then you post a video of like, oh, let me just experiment with a, something that's not important, but a cool little exercise. Like, which I wouldn't even recommend you do. It's just a cool exercise. And then that one's everyone's favorite video as well. So you're like, oh, how do you go about planning and preparing content? Because sometimes what I think is the most important stuff is just completely off the mark with what resonates with people and things I'm like, that is cool it's a party trick but it's not really anything deep or meaningful which right. everyone just eats up so yeah what's your approach to planning content and what do you found works and what doesn't
1: a lot of what has been successful for me and and you develop an audience you do this you know for any length of time as you start to understand what your audience are looking for for instance if i post a song video how to play xyz song or even how to play A particular solo, for instance, I did maybe a month ago, you know, Nuno Betancourt is so hot right now. Everybody's talking about Nuno. So I took a a classic Nuno solo and did it note for note. I said, man, this, this video is going to kill. And I think it got 300 views, you know, and then you have to step back and ask yourself, okay, Charlie, the people that watch your stuff, they are probably intermediate, upper level intermediate type players that are just starting to be able to go out to a blues jam and feel comfortable or, you know, play with a garage rock band. They're not out there ripping Nuno Betancourt solos, right? So again, that's on me for, for not having the, the foresight to kind of say this is not really my audience. So what has been most successful for, for me is when I do say, what are the things that I consider fundamental about playing solos that I wasn't taught, you know, what we had just talked about previously. And for instance, it might be the idea of, um, the video I did today is, it's, it's two licks and variations, you, moving these two licks around the fretboard. And it's a little four note pentatonic lick, ones with a 16th note triplet, and an eighth note with the, the triplet at the beginning, and the other one's with the eighth note first. Right. But it's variations on the same thing. But the way you move them around the fretboard is drastically different. So I give six, seven, eight different examples of how to take this lick. Here's a picking pattern. One, you know, here's a little insight. This thing sounds really, really fast, but my hand's barely moving. So here's how I'm doing that. But then, okay, once you get that down, how do you make it sound like music and how do you integrate it with other ideas? So, again, that's not nobody taught me that stuff. Nobody was saying, you know, Charlie, you know, here's a lick. And we're going to go out today and we're going to connect this lick with this other lick. And you're going to make up 10 melodies in between so you can play this 10 different ways. And then we're going to play it with 10 different time signatures. And then we're going to play it with 10 different grooves. You know, who's doing that? I, or who, it, it was not done for me. But that's the kind of stuff that, again, if, if we can introduce that and do it in such a way that it doesn't intimidate or turn people off. Again, I I have to think that sooner or later that's going to reap big rewards because I, I just see it as incredibly valuable. So that's that's where I'm going. It's how how can a person at that level that really wants to make inroads to going from okay to excellent? You know, what are what are the ways? What are the things that I can do? What questions are they asking? What information do they need? And where is the gap that you know? What is keeping them from making the progress they want to see?
0: Yeah, some really thought provoking stuff there. <laughs> yeah, I can only laugh at the heartache you feel when you do the most amazing video like the Nuna one. I'm sure lots of time and effort went into learning that solo. And then to have it get the 300 views can be absolutely shattering. But I think you're exactly on point. Who is my audience? What are the problems they were facing? What was I facing back when I was getting there? And uh, yeah, how can I put myself in the shoes of that person? avoid this expert amnesia and come up with the content that's going to be helpful to them and explain it in a way that makes sense. Yeah. Now, Charlie, I am aware we're getting on in time here and there's just a, a couple more questions I wanted to ask you before we wrap it up. Uh, you, you've recently partnered with Lauren Bateman and done a course with her. So tell us about your course. And I have a feeling it's tied in with everything we've talked about with the YouTube channel as well, but tell us about the course, how you went about organizing it and of course where people can... Fo- find it and check it out
1: sure so lauren is uh a person that has a sizable following on youtube and has done some great courses acoustic courses uh sort of uh fundamental music theory and blues courses and she's they say she developed quite a following and she contacted me and I said, Hey, look, a lot of these folks that have made progress, they're looking to do more advanced things and, and get involved with electric guitar playing. Would you be willing to do a course? And, and I'm well, absolutely. And so we brainstormed some things and, and what we kind of came up with again is my mission is this idea of improvising and, and fluency. And so the, the course that, that I came up with, it's called next level pentatonics and it's specifically the the canvas that we paint on is blues. so we we're doing just 145 major and minor blues and uh the the if you want to check it out it's uh, www.nextlevelpentatonics.com but it's uh very extensive you know hours and hours of uh of exercises and drills and example licks and example solos we spent a lot of time with some music theory, you know, about where do the pentatonic scales come from, even breaking down major scales and uh, talking a little about harmony that makes up the different scales and the, the different tonalities. And, and then we get into where, where the next level idea for me was where, where you would use major and minor scales in the course of playing over one, four, five blues. You know, you don't have to play minor pentatonic of the one chord over everything. Right, and how to do that, how to go about it, and then getting into loads and loads of examples, Not like, say, example solos. So, yeah, it's it's pretty extensive, but I think it's, again, that idea of someone who has learned a pentatonic scale or one pattern of the pentatonic scale, the minor pentatonic scale, and they want to play blues and actually make it sound good. You know, How, how are you going to do that? Where do you go from there? And, uh, you know, just made a long list of everything that I think is... Uh, fundamental to that and then broke that down into the what I think are the essential components and then broke that down into how would I go about learning it and um, and then broke that down into how once we've learned it how will we go about implementing it in a a real environment so made a bunch of uh, went in the studio and made a bunch of backing tracks of famous blues tunes and and I said, yeah, it was, it's, it's
0: very extensive. It's about, I think I want to say it's about seven hours long. So that's awesome. And knowing the caliber of the content that you put in, I know it would be an absolutely outstanding course. And what's been the response to it so far? It's been great. It's been
1: really good. I've, I've, uh, and it's one of those things it's, you know, and you, you hear about business and the internet and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And until you actually see some money come in, you go, oh, this does work. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is real. But yeah, it's been really good. And I think the people, uh, the feedback that I've had from the people that have, have bought the course, it, it's doing the things that I intended it to do. And it's allowing them to learn, which is
0: the idea. Fantastic. Uh, and one more time, where can our listeners go and check out that course? www.nextlevelpentatonics.com fantastic and we'll we'll include that link wherever you're listening to this podcast in the description so make sure you check that one out and uh subscribe to charlie on youtube as well we include a link to his channel i think it's just charlie long if you type that charlie long or charlie long guitar you'll come up on youtube right Charlie Long guitar i believe yeah yep fantastic and charlie i understand you were also also involved uh in financial planning and things like that and uh You know, I do the six-figure guitar coaching and we like to do lots of business talk on the podcast as well. Is there any financial advice you could give to guitar teachers and musicians who are notoriously bad with money or adverse to making money?
1: Yeah, first of all, uh, and again, that's a two-pronged question, the adverse to making money. Uh, I mean, we could spend (laughs) hours talking about that, right? But it's it's one of those things that, and somebody said to me once, you know, there's there's no dignity in starving, right? As as much as we might want to hold that out, uh, there's, there's no crime in uh, being good to yourself and having a nice life and being rewarded for your efforts. And it's, it's kind of interesting because of all, all, most of our musical idols, none of my musical idols were poor, right? I mean, I wanted to play the guitar because these people were flying around the world in private jets and hanging out with supermodels and, you know, that, that was all, I was like, yeah, that, that's good stuff. It was not the guy dying in the back alley who spent his last, you know, few coins on heroin. That, that was not my hero. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's just sort of funny that it's almost a paradox. The whole idea of the, uh, we get into, we get into music because we're inspired by these people that are making ridiculous amounts of money. And then we become a starving artist and want to hold that out there as something that's fantastic, you know? So first of all, it's not a bad thing to have a nice lifestyle and to live a good life. You know, secondly, uh, it's just, the most basic financial advice, first of all, you know, save more than you earn and, or, or spend less than you earn and invest the difference. Right. And, uh, start early, you know, put some money into uh, some things that are going to make money and, you know try to do it on a regular basis develop the discipline if, if you make a dollar take 10 15 20% of it and set it aside and get in that habit early you know and uh, try to learn enough that uh, you know what you're going to need to set aside on a yearly basis and how much you need to have that grow to reach a point where you can become financially independent financial independence not necessarily Being filthy rich, but it's the idea that at some point in your life, working becomes optional and you can still afford to do the things that you want to do with life. And there are ways to calculate that. And, uh, you know, try, and again, the the biggest advice I can give is start early. There's always reasons to not invest. You know, it's really, you know, in the fake musicians. Well, oh my gosh. Well, I I want to make that record, you know, and, and we only need a little more studio time. So. I can't invest any money right now because I, I've got to give money to the band for studio time. And so it's like, well, and the van the broke down and I've got to give money to the band because the van's broken down. And then, oh no, I just had a baby. So now the baby needs formula. And, you know, it, it's just, it's a litany and we've all been there. There's always reasons to not put money aside, you know, and you, you just have to convince yourself that you have to, and get started as early as possible in life because the power of compound interest is
0: truly phenomenal. Absolutely amazing advice there. And it's always the simplest advice, which is the most effective.
1: <laughs> Isn't that the case?
0: Yeah. Everyone wants these get-rich-quick schemes or cryptos. It's not always get-rich-quick, but it's get-rich-surely.
1: Well, and the get-rich-quick things, you can also get poor-quick. Yeah. we've <laughs> scheme with the crashes in crypto. Yeah, people made huge amounts of cash, but there's also people that have lost everything. So,
0: yeah. yeah. And uh, the the big criticism, not only criticism of crypto because people can do really well with it, but I did an equation for my six-figure guys the other day and I just said, hey, if you put $100 into a Facebook ad or some form of advertising for your business and you get 10 students that pay $200 each, that is a much bigger return than what you're going to get putting your money into crypto <laughs> or yeah. any other. The best investment you can have is in yourself and obviously your business uh, provided you are making good educated decisions <laughs> and not just gambling. Anyway, we will not over up this can of worms. Just spend less than you earn and invest the rest, whether that's in yourself or assets or whatever it is, good solid Absolutely. advice there. Absolutely. Now, Charlie, I'm going to bring this one in for our final question. Okay. If there's one last piece of advice you could give to our listeners on any topic of, of your choice, whether it's teaching, guitar, playing, finances, whatever it happens to be, relationships, what would that be? Um, You know what? And I
1: think uh, this is interesting and it just popped into my mind that I think what I see with so many folks that are involved in the business of teaching others is that they tend to lose themselves and they tend to lose their own motivations and their own desires outside of the business and I see an incredibly high level of burnout in this business. People that are just mentally exhausted, physically exhausted, because they've, other than making some money, they've done nothing to recharge themselves. For. So first of all, if you're if you're in the business of teaching other people and you're, you make sure that you stay true to your own motivations and desires. Why did you get involved with music in the first place? Are you still practicing the guitar, are you still learning? Are you doing the things that made you fall in love with the instrument? Because sooner or later, if you don't, it's, it's going to become basically the, the business equivalent of digging a ditch. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be pure drudgery. And I, I think that's incredibly important. Never cease improving. I think, uh, you know, that's something that it's easy to do when we get into that trap of being mentally exhausted, being a little mentally beat down, giving away so much of your energy, helping other people learn. Are you continuing to improve yourself? Because ultimately that's, and, and again, now I'm speaking through my own prism again, but that's what recharges my batteries is the idea that I could get up tomorrow and find a way to be a little better at some aspect of playing guitar than I am today. And that's still makes me incredibly excited right and then to be able to pass that on and if you know we get too far removed from that or i talk to guitar teachers man i haven't played guitar in weeks like, what are you doing yeah. <laughs> what are you doing man didn't you just yell at all your students because they don't practice all the time you know and uh so yeah we do have to run the business but at the same time you have to take care of yourself and you have to nourish yourself and um, i think that's probably the
0: advice. Again, that almost goes back to that self-awareness thing. That's some really solid advice there, Charlie. So thank you so much on behalf of myself and the top music listener community. I really appreciate not just you coming on to the podcast now that we finally made it happen, but just the wonderful friendship that we got. So Charlie, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And thank you for coming. on. thank you,
1: Michael. My pleasure. My pleasure.
0: No worries. Now, guys, if you're listening at home, make sure you check out Charlie. We'll post the links to all his stuff. He mentioned working with Lauren Bateman. We interviewed her back in episode number three. She helped us launch the podcast back in the day. So uh, she does wonderful stuff and check out her channel as well. And, of course, guys, if you found this helpful, if you're interested in improving your teaching skills, if you're interested in making more money from your teaching business, check out our Top Music Guitar memberships. You can find those at our website. Once again, for less than the price of what you charge for a lesson. You can learn how to make thousands of dollars more teaching guitar and have a bigger impact on your students and hopefully reconnect with your why. Uh, You know, if you can make more money, buy more guitars, have more time to sit around playing them, then we've done our job as teachers. So once again, thanks to Charlie and thanks to everyone listening at home. We'll see you in the next episode. If you enjoy this show and want to hear more of our work, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. For links and resources mentioned in this episode, including a free ebook on how to find more guitar students, visit us at www.topmusic.co/guitar, or check out the show notes. And lastly, thanks again for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.